Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, Yesterday, Governor Kemp held a news conference in which he announced his legislation to overhaul Georgia citizens' arrest law. Uh, The bill, as many people who have followed it know, was really a response to the gruesome murder last year of Ahmaud Arbery, which happened, by the way, on February 23rd. We're coming up on a year since the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery, which is kind of hard to fathom, actually. Um, the men who were later charged in Arbery's killing said they were making a citizen's arrest. And in fact, the first prosecutor to look at the case uh, used the citizen's arrest statute uh, to say that they should not be prosecuted for the shooting. Uh, in making his announcement, the governor said that, that uh, Arbery was the victim of, quote, vigilante-style violence. He called the citizen's arrest law an antiquated law ripe for abuse. And, and the, the bill certainly has a lot of bipartisan support. But as usual, there are a lot of measures that are being looked at under the Gold Dome that are um, continued to uh, uh, create contention among legislators as the session continues. We're going to talk about some of those uh, issues and many more with our panel today. It's Wednesday, which means I'm joined uh, by the AJC's political reporter, Greg Bluestein, still hard at work on his book on the Georgia election in 2020. Hi, Greg. Good morning. Yeah, plugging away at that while continuing to plug away at covering uh, Georgia politics for the AJC. Yeah, I don't. I frankly don't know how you do it all, but you are one of the hardest working guys in show business, so it doesn't surprise me you're able to take on many tasks at once. Thanks for being here today. Um, speaking of uh, authors, we're joined today by Professor Karen Owen, Professor of Political Science at West Georgia University. Karen, you're, t- tell us about the new book that you have that I think has an official publication date of later this month. Yes, it is. It's entitled Special Elections, The Backdoor Entrance to Congress. And we, uh, my co-author, Charles Bullock at the University of Georgia, he and I looked at um, special elections, particularly how the the outcomes of these elections and if they're a bellwether to general elections. Uh, We really focused this book on um, the sixth district race here in Georgia in the 2017 cycle, as well as some of the other ones that were necessitated because of the Trump administration appointment. Well, congratulations on that coming out. And you're also working on a chapter, uh, much like what Greg Bluestein's whole book will be, which is you're, you're going to contribute a chapter to a book about battleground states in the 2020 election, right? Yes, it's really talking about Georgia and the, what I consider kind of this rebirth, reemergence of really strong two-party competition. Um, terrific. It's good to see that you're very busy as well. And, of course, teaching classes at, in political science at West Georgia. Eric Tannenblatt is uh, back with us. He's a longtime Republican insider, served as chief of staff in the first term of former governor Sonny Perdue. But, uh, Eric Tannenblatt, as we always say, you have been an advisor and a major fundraiser 
for Republicans up and down the ticket in Georgia, as well as uh, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush. You were very active in the Mitt Romney campaign early in the 2016 election cycle. You were working with uh, Jeb Bush. And uh, in the meantime, in addition to the political work you do, you are the global, uh, is it director? What's the correct term? You oversee the global chair. You're the the chair of public of public policy for Dettons, the world's largest law firm. Hi, Eric. Hi there. I'm glad to be joining uh, this political book festival. I need to um, yeah. you know, write my own book. <laughs> uh, uh, by the way, one other quick thing. Uh, you're teaching a class out at University of Georgia right now, too. No, at, at Emory. And it's, uh, I'm it's sorry, an at Emory. At Emory, of yeah, course. Under, undergraduate political science class on federalism. Oh, okay. That's that's pretty interesting. You know, at some point we'll have to talk to you more about what you talk about in that class. We're also joined today uh, by Nabila Islam. She's a Democratic political strategist. Came to a lot of people's attention when she mounted her campaign for the Democratic nomination for the 7th District Congressional uh, seat. Nabila, thank you for coming back to do the show. How are you doing? It's frigid out there. Are you able to stay inside today? Yes, I'm. I'm definitely staying inside today, and uh, I'm. A, <laughs> I hope everyone else is as well. But I'm glad to be back. Yeah, it's like it, here at my house. It's twenty. It was twenty-one degrees uh, when I woke up this morning. It's warmed up to a balmy twenty-seven at this point. Um, all right, Greg, let's get to work. Uh, let's talk about Governor Kemp, who has now proposed a, a, a revision, essentially, to the citizen's arrest law. Um, I guess the first step will, to, will be to uh, essentially uh, uh, get rid of the, the statute as it exists now, but to propose a new version of it, which still gives, what, shopkeepers, businesses, and law enforcement officers, either off-duty or in different jurisdictions than the one in which they work, uh, the ability to legally detain people. Talk about it a bit. Yeah, he's trying to thread the needle here. Um, and we haven't found any staunch Republican opponents of this yet, although I'm not saying there, there won't be. Um, but this came out um, really as a result of last year's discussions over hate crimes legislation. When when the governor signed that, that um, landmark bill into law, um, civil rights advocates and other including many Democrats and some Republicans, both said he needed to go further and um, and either repeal or overhaul the citizen's arrest statute, which which dates back to the 1800s in Georgia and hasn't been substantially updated in, in generations. Um, and so they spent um, a lot of the off session working on, on this new proposal um, that would do exactly that, Bill. Um, it would uh, allow employees at businesses, security officers, private investigator, investigators, and off-duty police officers to make arrests when they're not in their jurisdictions. Um, so he thinks, with the governor and his supporters, including many Democrats, um, believe that this is, this is an appropriate sort of threading of the needle um, to still allow uh, some citizens, some lawful detainments without um, giving you know, residents carte blanche to, to make arrests on their own. Yeah, Nabila, we've, when we've talked about this bill on the show, before Governor Kemp introduced his formal proposal, we talked about the fact this bill was in the works. And um, what, what we hear over and over, Nabila, is uh, that really 
uh, law enforcement officials don't want citizens making arrests. They're really not equipped to do it uh, with any skill or to do it safely. So in some ways, especially in the aftermath of the Arbery death, this bill seems to be a no-brainer, Nabila. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I'll give credit where credit is due, and I'm, I'm really glad that the governor is pushing for, push for this. Um, as, you know, uh, Greg outlined, this is a outdated uh, law that has allowed, frankly, uh, a lot of racists to take the law into their own hands and, uh, you know, arrest mainly black and brown people, black people in this country, as we saw with the Mont Arbery. I mean, it's hard to believe that was a year ago, but um, we're, we're definitely moving in the right direction. You know, Eric, in addition to what apparently most legislators, uh, and we'll see if it wins overwhelming support, but in addition to most legislators apparently believing this is smart policy, this is also another step by the governor to um, help his political position in terms of of, uh, carving out somewhat more moderate ground than we think of when we think of the way in which he ran his first election campaign, Eric? Well, I, sure. I, I mean, if you if you look at it politically, but I, I uh, don't think we should look at it politically. I think the governor is doing the right thing. And I was pleased to hear Nabila say, give credit where credit's due. I mean, we have some antiquated laws on the books. I think after the hate crimes bill, the landmark hate crimes bill last year, Uh, I think this is just another further step to show that Governor Kemp is, uh, you know, trying to get rid of, you know, some of these uh, old laws on the books that just don't make sense. And this this makes sense. And I do think it's going to pass. And I do think, you know, it already has bipartisan support. And I I don't think we should always look at everything from a political lens. I think in this case, this is the right thing to do. Yeah, no, which is why I, I preface my question to you by saying that I think most people do consider this to be sound public policy. Karen, can we look back at the history of the citizen's arrest statute? Patricia Murphy uh, had a column in this morning's AJC, I think in some ways building on the work of Greg and her colleague Bill Rankin, who had looked at this at some point. The, the, the history of this is darkly darkly, troublingly fascinating. It it was first introduced and passed in 1863 by a a man who was an avowed secessionist and uh, uh, a proponent of slavery. His name was, uh, what, C.C. Cobb, I think. Um, He was the cousin of U.S. Congressman Thomas Cobb, for whom Cobb County was named, but he believed, uh, we think, that the reason this law might be necessary is that it would allow for uh, white Southerners to make citizens' arrests of escaped slaves. At least that seems to be one of the premises that we believe would have have, uh, 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 undergirded this particular statute, Karen. Yes, and I think uh, Patricia Murphy's piece in the AJC this morning is really great at explaining and laying out this history. As as you mentioned, it also was passed at the time right after the Emancipation Emancipation Proclamation. And so there was some concerns, I'm sure, amongst those whites in the South about what they needed to do in order to uh, 
hold on to the system that they were. I think at this time, too, that gentleman was trying to codify some laws in Georgia. And so this was bringing the Georgia code together. But we do know that the law then was used by many um, furthering into the Jim Crow era where lynchings became horrific in Georgia. And so much of that where citizens were taking on um, this what they perceived as a right to arrest uh, black men, and then they were hanged. So it's just very, very awful history that we know about this. And, you know, we're looking at it now after a really difficult time last year and witnessing and seeing the video of that murder in, in Brunswick. And, you know, sometimes laws, we don't really think about needing them changed until a situation arises where we understand how antiquated they are and how much it's needed to be updated. And probably, you know, Eric's very correct and, and astute in saying that we don't need to look at it in the political lens. It's just the right thing to do now to change this law. Yeah. Um, Greg, everything that, that both Eric and Karen just said uh, contributes to uh, the reasons that Calvin Smyrie, the Democratic dean of the Georgia legislature, uh, it, at this news conference yesterday, he appeared next to Governor Kemp and said, essentially, I'm not quoting him directly, but essentially said, you know, we look at it, and this is sort of what Karen said, we look now at a law like this and wonder why we didn't deal with this a very long time ago, uh, but at least we're doing it now. And, and it is sort of astonishing to think that a statute that's more than 150 years old, that very well may have been passed to capture escaped slaves, to lead the lynchings of black people uh, in, in Georgia, uh, should have been on the books for this long. It's, it's kind of chilling <clears throat> to think that that history uh, is still part of what we are dealing with right now or soon won't be. Yeah, I mean, the legislature works in very mysterious ways, um, just like with hate crimes. Uh, there is broad consensus among lawmakers since that statute was struck down in 2002 um, to pass some former version of a, of a new hate crimes bill. But it took it took the protest over racial justice over the summer to really prod lawmakers into doing that last year. And this has been going. You know, there's been a healthy debate about citizens' arrest for generations. But it, again, it, it took the death of Ahmaud Arbery to really to bring that um, to the forefront. Um, and and frankly, as we've all mentioned, it took an alliance between Governor Kemp, Republicans and Democrats. And I was at that press conference yesterday and the first person that Governor Kemp turned around to to thank um, after after he uh, announced this legislation was Calvin Smirey. And so it's another reminder of, of how important those bridges between parties can be as much as the parties fight and bicker over all sorts of things. And we'll be talking about voting rights legislation the rest of the session. Um, but this is an example. We'll see if it if it passes, but this is an example of an early, of an early compromise that um, that could lead to the betterment of Georgia. Nabila, I, to echo Greg, uh, you know, it was the work of activists on the ground that the Black Lives Matter movement uh, that led to what is happening right now. Uh, so it was, you know, all that momentum and protesting and organizing uh, that got us to where we are today. So while legislators do have the power to make a change, uh, it, it took people to hold them accountable to make this day happen, uh, to make what is happening now happen. Um, there are other measures, Greg, that are uh, unfolding down at the Capitol that don't have such broad bipartisan support. And uh, so most of them, or many of them, 
uh, are around changes that a number of Republicans want to make to voting laws in Georgia as a result of the 2020 election. And, and I just want to briefly touch on the fact, Greg, that yesterday um, a Senate subcommittee did in fact vote three to two to end at will, no excuse, absentee voting in Georgia. Their proposal would make absentee voting available to those over 75, those who have a doctor's note or are out of town. That measure, which is SB 71, is now going to go ahead move to full committee. Um, and uh, I, I think they also yesterday in the subcommittee passed the bill requiring photo IDs or driver's licenses uh, when people request an absentee ballot in writing. That, too, passed three to two, and it goes on to the full committee. So at least on the Senate side, Greg, these election change bills are uh, do have momentum. Yeah, and they were actually voted on this morning. It was supposed to be yesterday, but that, that the meeting oh, was okay. delayed till okay. this morning. So we're even fresher news. But you're exactly right. Those two those two measures passed in separate subcommittee hearings um, a few hours ago, and um, and you know we'll, we'll be following all these different pieces piecemeal packages as as they come through. And there's going to be another um, more extensive uh, package of legislation we're expecting any moment now from from Mike Dugan, the Republican leader in the state Senate. Uh, that could encompass some of these measures. But the one that we're most closely thinking will actually get to the governor's desk um, is is that second bill, the bill requiring photo ID or driver's license identifications when requesting an absentee ballot, because that's the measure that in some form or fashion, Governor Kemp, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, and Speaker Ralston have all endorsed that general idea. And an AJC poll showed uh, a majority of Georgia voters like that idea too. So not saying it's going to pass, not saying there's not issues with it um, that critics will bring up, but um, but it will. I, I think that has the most juice behind it. Yeah, Karen, uh, Greg makes a good point. The AJC poll suggests that a majority of Georgians do feel that they wish they'd like to see a little bit more election security around absentee voting. Um, but uh, Republicans are nevertheless struggling with what I think opponents would call some draconian measures to change absentee balloting right now. And uh, they're going to get fierce pushback, especially on the House side from Democrats. Yes. Yes, I think you're right that, you know, the polling does show that many people do feel it's appropriate to be showing some type of ID when you're casting your ballot or requesting a ballot so that you're verifying who you are, that you are the legal voter. Um, that is, you know, not something new this election cycle when we've had the discussion over photo ID in other states. Majority of the residents in those states say that they do support um, those photo IDs being shown. I think that, you know, I heard this last week in a conversation with an elections attorney that the state of Georgia probably needs to consider whether it really wants to be a state that pushes in-person voting, that that's the way our laws are set up to secure the in-person voting, or if we want to move like other states have and become a state that's much more geared towards the mail-in ballot voting. And that determines, if you think about that in the state going either way, you have to set your laws up to secure which method of voting you're really preferring. Because if you're trying to do both, it gets extremely complicated, especially since the state doesn't control all of this. The localities are the ones running the election on election days or before. Eric, are, are Republicans in the legislature who are promoting the harshest restrictions to absentee balloting 
Are they in any way in danger of creating the same kind of situation that we saw unfold in November's voting when President Trump had convinced Republicans they shouldn't trust absentee balloting, they should come to the polls on Election Day, and as a result, Democrats built up huge margins uh, against Republicans in their advance voting. Are, are Republicans looking at the potential for these bills to create the same concerns among Republican voters in the next election cycle, or is that too far off to make a difference? Yeah, I think you have to be really careful when you uh, start tinkering with these laws. And I think history shows, you know, whenever you start playing around with these election laws, uh, you know, they tend to backfire. And I think some of this is a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. And I don't think just because you didn't like the outcome of the election that you don't go ahead and change the law. And I think Greg makes a really good point. I'd look at the provisions where the bills that have the support of the governor, the speaker, and the lieutenant governor, and I think some of the others uh, won't ultimately uh, get passed. And they're being promoted because people didn't like the outcome of the election, and they're trying to make excuses for it. I hate to say it. Nabila? Uh, Eric, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I think that, you know, the last time I was on the show, I talked about how we need to make it easier for people to vote, to exercise their constitutional right to vote. Uh, and these laws are just going to make it harder for folks. I mean, Republicans weren't complaining about absentee voting when it was mainly Republicans using it. And now that Democrats have a voting habit uh, of, you know, mailing in ballots, you know, that this is voter suppression. This is what you do when you don't want your opponents to win. You, you make it harder for them to even cast their vote. So it's not, I think it's just gross that these you know measures are being pushed, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping that they don't pass. But we'll see. Okay, Greg, you, you know, it's interesting. Um, I recall the last time that David Perdue was on political—I mean, I'm sorry, not David Perdue, David Ralston, the, the House Speaker, was on a, a political rewind right before—he was on before— the November election. And at that point, he was expressing his doubts about the integrity of absentee balloting. He said he had tremendous concerns about absentee, the security of absentee voting, potential for fraud. And of course, we're not the only place he said that. He told that to reporters like you and others. And yet now he seems to have modified his position. He's one of the Republican leaders who opposes ending no-excuse absentee balloting, which is probably one of the reasons it'll have a hard time, even if it passes the Senate, getting anywhere in the House. Yeah, and one of the reasons he did it is exactly what touches on what Eric was saying, was that Republicans supported this whole regime, um, you know, more than a decade ago. Uh, and and it, it's, it's meant to help voters who can't readily access the polls um, and also has been, you know, used in more recent years during a global pandemic. Um, and so I think it's really important is a lesson for, for any sort of legislation to look at the sponsors, um, because we in the media will make a big deal about, about legislation sometimes, and it's rightly so, like we, it deserves to be covered, um, that might be shocking and, and outrageous, um, but is only sponsored by one or two like freshman you know, lawmakers who might not have any, any sort of juice in the, in the legislature. So when you look at the pieces of legislation that are sponsored by a whole host of Republican lawmakers, including senior leadership, those are the ones that might have more chances of moving forward. I'm not saying we ignore you know, the, uh, the, the, the sort of fringe proposals because they, they deserve a piece in the conversation too. Um, and, but you know, it's, it's, 
It's those, law, those pieces of legislation that are backed by Speaker Ralston or his top deputies that are backed by Senate Republican leadership um, that will go forward. Okay, but to put a period on this part of the conversation, as you said earlier, we're going to see a package of bills come out of, of the Republicans in the Senate that'll sort of bring everything that they'd like to do together, and it'll give us a clearer sense of what Republicans, at least in the Senate, really are pushing as opposed to the disparate bills that are out there right now. Is that fair? Yeah, and they might they might end up encompassing some of these other piecemeal proposals. So it's not like those things that we just talked about are, are, aren't gaining traction, because they might, but they might also just become part of, of this overall package that Republican leaders are pushing. And that Jeff Duncan is is making very clear, the lieutenant governor, um, that he he wants this to be a bipartisan somewhat consensus-driven uh, process. Okay, let's do this. Let's take our first break of the show, and we'll be back with more on Political Rewind in just a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Dr. Karen Owen, AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein. Uh, Nabila Islam, Democratic political strategist, and Eric Tannenblatt, uh, Republican insider, join us uh, for today's show. Karen Owen, because we here on Political Rewind are political junkies, as are so many people in our listening audience, our attitude is you can never start talking about the next next election soon enough. And with that in mind, David Perdue has given us a great topic to talk about 2022, having filed now at least the legal paperwork, preserving for himself a chance to run against Raphael Warnock. Uh, how did you, were you surprised to see the Purdue folks number one file? at least to have a placeholder so early. And what do you imagine is really going to happen there? Is you, do you imagine he's going to jump into that race? So I think you're correct, right? Campaigns start within a month, right, for the uh, after the one election. And I was a little bit surprised that he's gone ahead this quickly and filed the paperwork. Um, I figured it would take a little bit maybe more time for him to decide if he really wanted to mount and another campaign and what that would look like if he would um, want to pursue the Senate again. I think what he has done, though, and his consultants and operatives have probably been smart, is they have filed so they can hold the place and they're letting the other field <coughs> candidates know that he does have a potential interest and he could be making an announcement soon. So they have to start figuring out, do they want to challenge in the U.S. Senate seat or if they want to look at another office to look at for, for running? Eric, you are, and I know sometimes you're very cautious about how much you are, are willing to, to say about what's going on behind the scenes, but you are certainly one of those Republicans who people like David Perdue tend to want to, if not him himself, his people, talk to before making a move like this. Uh, what are the Purdue folks saying about uh, his, the realistic potential for him to jump into this race against Warnock? Well, I'm not going to say anything that hasn't been said publicly 
Um, you know, he filed, and as uh, you know, Karen said that uh, he has reserved his slot. I will say uh, personally, not on behalf of the Purdue campaign, that you know, I have always felt since the last election ended that he's the one candidate that if he got in the race will freeze the field. I mean, he'll clear. He's the one guy that could run where we won't see a primary. And I think you started seeing other candidates or potential candidates talking about running. And I think by him at least putting a marker down that he's looking at it, uh, I think it it may get those candidates to um, sort of tamper down their comments I think it's also important to note he has $5 million in the bank left from his last race, which is a significant uh, amount of money uh, to, to start. And, and look, Dave, David won his election in November. You know, he was forced into a runoff because of the runoff law. So, you know, he, he was a, a very successful senator. He served the state well. And I think that you'll see uh, Republicans and independents and even some Democrats that uh, will rally around his candidacy if he gets in. I have heard from a lot of people in the last 24 to 48 hours since the news broke that, you know, they they have hope for the future, knowing that David uh, is potentially making a comeback. Nabila, as a Democrat on this panel, what, what are your thoughts about how vulnerable Raphael Warnock you know, could be to a David Purdue challenge? Eric laid out some uh, uh, pretty uh, significant strengths that Purdue would bring to a contest like that. Uh, it sounds like he should have spent his $5 million in that runoff. Uh, I, look, I, no <laughs> one's clamoring over... David Perdue right now. I don't. There's there's no love lost over his candidacy. He's not an inspirational candidate. I uh, and I think him filing right now was a bold move because you don't you don't just file for funsies like you file because you're going to run for office. Uh, but I I see like him. I understand doing this trying to maybe not get a Doug Collins in the primary. Uh, but I and I think uh, you know Warnock would defeat a Purdue. You know and I think uh, you know if Purdue does run, it'll be his you know third time losing in a row. Uh, Greg, no Doug Collins, no Kelly Leffler, uh, no other Republicans. Uh, Eric points out that uh, that, that uh, Purdue freezes the field and could have it to himself. Uh, he has frozen the field, right? Um, no one's entered that race yet, um, and everyone is. And, and I'm, you know, everyone I've talked to behind the scenes, um, many of the same people I'm sure Eric is talking to, um, have said exactly that. They're waiting and watching um, for David Purdue's decision. Um, I don't think that their campaign thought it would explode like the way it would, because otherwise it wouldn't have come um, in the manner it came <laughs> on, Monday, on Monday evening. Um, you know, there was a there was a story by me and a story by Fox News shortly afterwards. But but it took I, it, I'll put it this way. It may, I talked to many of his senior advisors shortly after the filing, and even some of them didn't know that the filing was coming. So um, that does not seem like a coordinated, calculated move from a campaign. Um, my gut, and I've been skeptical in some of the reporting, my gut says he doesn't run. Um, uh, but, you know, the advisors I've talked to also say that um, he is leaning towards it. So he could end up jumping in um, and making his decision. Um, they've given him a, an internal timetable till March uh, to decide whether or not to actually formally go ahead. 
Uh, wait, I, I'm hoping you can explain this a little more. And Eric, if you want to jump in, please do. Are, are, Greg, you're right. The timing of the announcement was odd. It didn't certainly, it wasn't showcased in some way that would, you know, call attention in a more formal way to his uh, thinking about running. But what are you saying? Why are you saying that this was a rogue uh, uh, announcement? No. What, what, what happened then? Uh, I mean, they switched. It was a paperwork filing to, to basically... Uh, in, in, in the words of his advisors, to keep his options open, to keep his powder dry, ready just in case. But if this was a very coordinated, you know, all hands on deck effort, then um, I think more people in his, in his operation would have known about it um, because it took me about 15, 20 minutes to kind of um, get someone on the line who um, who actually knew about this filing, what it meant. I'll put it that way. This was not okay. some some coordinated strategy, strategic rollout of, of a big announcement. Eric, I... Uh... I'm sorry, Greg. Eric, I'll give you the last word on on this converse, part of the conversation. Well, I, I, again, I'm not going to, you know, talk about things that are not public, but I will say that, you know, following the filing, there were uh, emails sent out and tweets that were posted by uh, David and talking about, you know, the conversations he and his his wife and family have had about him him running. So, uh, you know, look, we just got through with. Uh, the impeachment trial uh, last weekend. We're now moving on. Uh, you know, I already saw this morning that the National Republican Senatorial Committee is already, you know, attacking uh, Senator Warnock. So I think that people are now starting to focus on the next election cycle. So um, I, I, I don't I, I, I just think we need to wait. And, and and see what happens. But I think for the moment, uh, the Republican field is frozen. Okay. Um, I think the final word on this essentially is that obviously Raphael Warnock only has that seat for two years because it's the uh, last two years of what was Johnny Isaacson's full term. So he is already, uh, he, he gets sworn in and, and immediately, unlike John Ossoff, has to turn around and run for reelection. Greg, speaking of the 2022 cycle, but also putting it in the context of the crisis we're faced today in terms of COVID-19, as you well know, there are teachers across Georgia who really believe that if, if there's a push to open many schools, and we know there's enormous controversy about whether classes should be held in person or continue remotely, that they ought to jump uh, with state approval uh, way up in the line to get vaccinated against the disease. And we've tragically had a number of teachers in various school districts. Cobb County, I think, lost three uh, uh, teachers uh, to uh, COVID. Um, it, it, and it's interesting that Governor Kemp is holding the line in a very strong way against expanding to uh, teachers. Yeah, and this has been a source of debate within the, the governor's office as well as under the Gold Dome. Um, and his, his, his argument is that um, the people most susceptible to chronic, to, to, to being hospitalized or to being killed by this disease are the people over 65. And there's still a significant number uh, of, of, of Georgians over 65 who have not yet been vaccinated. And so, uh, and, and, and he's not alone. I mean, there's there's about a dozen or there's more than a dozen other states that have also not extended their vaccination protocol to teachers. Uh, but there's dozens of states who have. And so this is where Georgia's in that dividing line. And it's become a very 
big political um, catch-all because while many Georgia um, school systems have reopened for in-person learning, others like mine in DeKalb County uh, are virtual only. And, and this is becoming a political kind of rallying call to exhausted parents uh, and frustrated parents who want to see some sort of uh, return to normalcy for, for, their, for their students. Uh, and of course, Karen, we're now, the CDC is now urging uh, that schools can reopen safely, especially uh, earlier grades, not so much high schools where there is, they believe, wider possibility of, or there's possibility of wider transmission of the virus. Uh, but, but I do want to frame this in a political context for just a couple of minutes. I want to go back to 2002. Roy Barnes running for re-election after one term as governor, uh, alienated teachers because uh, during his tenure in the first term, uh, wanted to have more, wanted to give schools more power to fire teachers who were underperforming in the classroom. And, and, and although there were many reasons Roy Barnes lost re-election, there is no question that an analysis of the vote showed that teachers were really alienated from Barnes and didn't want to see him run again. So I can't help but wonder if there is a political uh, issue here in terms of how teachers are going to react to, to Brian Kemp uh, and, and his uh, unwillingness to give him the vaccine right now. So you are correct that teachers are a powerful voting block, and anyone would have to consider them. Um, I think if you go back to 2002, though, and look at that race, it wasn't just, you know, the teachers' impact, as you mentioned. There were a lot of dynamics at play in 2002, and I think that in 2022, there will probably be some other dynamics at play. But Kent has to think about teachers, but I think there's two other things politically he has to consider, and Greg hit one of them, which is parents. And parents needing to be able to work and their children need to be able to return to school. And it's not they're returning to school as a child care, but there are children who are suffering by not getting the education they need because they cannot learn well virtually. And then the other group is the dynamics of those individuals who are 65 and older. We know that older people vote more than the younger. And so that is a population he has to consider. He knows they're vulnerable to this virus, and so he therefore wants to make sure that they are getting vaccinated. I also think in this conversation, we have to remember the supply part. How many vaccines are coming to Georgia? And we are a large state compared to our neighbors. We have so many more people compared to Alabama, and the fact that they can start to inoculate certain emergency essential workers and then move to teachers perhaps a little bit faster than we can because of the size of our state. Um, Eric, I want to give you and then Nabila a chance. Eric, as I was posing that question for Karen Owen, I saw in our little WebEx video that we used to see each other, you shaking your head very vigorously when I tried to suggest that teachers may find themselves unhappy with Governor Kemp. So please weigh in. Well, I, I just think the comparison to Roy Barnes getting rid of teacher tenure, it, this does not compare. We're talking about a, a health, a public health emergency. And I'm glad Karen mentioned the supply issue, because if we had a greater supply of the vaccines, uh, everyone can get vaccinated and everyone will get vaccinated. But the governor has to make hard choices. And none of these choices are easy. And, you know, that's part of leadership. You know, he got criticized for opening the state too early back in the spring 
And the state's actually in a pretty good position because of some of the moves he made. And we have a lot of businesses that stayed alive because of some of his moves. But back then he was criticized for it. So I think that there's no doubt that we need to get kids back to school. There's no doubt that parents are frustrated. There's no doubt that people that are over 65 or are caring for people over 65 want to see the vaccines to the, those people over 65. So these are hard choices. And the governor is in a position where he has to prioritize. But I think, you know, this is all going to once we get the supply and the supply is not, you know, he can't control that. But I will say we do have the infrastructure in place to, you know, give out these vaccines once the supply is reached. I've talked to a number of businesses that are, are ready to vaccinate their employees or use their facility as a vaccination center. Um, it, it's just we need we need more supply. All right, Eric, before I bring Nabila in and get her word, I just do want to m- make sure that that I say something on my own behalf here. I have said on any number of occasions on this show that I think the state and counties are dealing with tremendous challenges because the supply of the vaccine is limited. I am not suggesting that Governor Kemp isn't under pressure to figure out how to distribute the vaccine. And I understand the way in which they've set up their uh, system for rolling it out. I'm simply asking whether there is a potential for uh, people in the education community to push back. I'm not saying whether that's a, uh, if, whether the governor's made a good decision or not, Eric. No, there's, there's, there's no doubt. I mean, every decision that a, a political leader makes, you know, is a politic is a decision and there can always be pushback. But I think at the end of the day, when people are vaccinated and we get to the end of the summer and hopefully knock on wood, everyone is vaccinated and we start seeing this thing wind down People will look back and they will recognize the leadership that Governor Kemp has provided throughout this whole crisis. Nabila, let me give you the last word before we have to get to a break. Sure. So many states right now, if not the majority of states, are prioritizing teachers. And uh, I think that, look, if we, the minimum CDC guideline says wear a mask. We live in a state where our governor has yet to even implement a mask mandate. So, you know, Teachers are concerned that their lives are in danger. Look, we're not, the, Governor Kemp in this administration is not only denigrating the teaching profession, but he's showing that he's not valuing their actual lives. And if we want to talk about this politically, I mean, like, I think hell hath no fury scorn Georgia public school teachers, and they are a voting block, and they will show up at the polls and remember how this governor has treated them. So I, I think it's unfortunate that we're not prioritizing our teachers, and Parents are also mad, and I think it's it's not it's, it's not good for um, our state. I think that's a I political. Just I think that's a political. I think that's a political answer, and it's unfortunate that you have to politicize a public health crisis because those same teachers also have relatives that are over sixty-five years old, and they're worried about those relatives too getting vaccinated. We need to vaccinate everyone. We just need the supply to do it. Okay, um, thank you uh, uh, for your thoughts about that. Uh, We got to get to another break. We'll come back in just a minute with uh, more on Political Rewind. Greg Bluestein, here's a subject that, depending on your answer, we might be able to dispose of very quickly. We're now being told by the U.S. Census Bureau that it will be September 30th before states are going to get data 
on uh, populations, and therefore it won't be until well into October before legislatures here and across country will be able to start the redistricting process. To what extent are, are we thinking that that could have an impact on candidates lining up to run in primaries as soon as March of 2022? Yeah, we were just talking about how David Perdue is freezing the Senate field. Uh, I'd say the entire congressional field, to some degree, <laughs> and the legislative field is, is frozen because they don't even know what the districts will look like. Now, for Congress, you don't have to live in the district to run, so that might um, change some of the you know, decision-making. But, um, for instance, if you're a Republican looking to run for either the 6th or 7th District, Georgia, which are which Republicans still see as vulnerable, you're not sure whether to get in or not, because you don't know if Republicans will try to make it a lot harder for Carolyn Verdot to win re-election or for Lucy McBath to win re-election. Um, and you don't know if you live in within the district lines. So I've talked to many Republicans who are eyeing both those races who don't know what to do. Yeah, uh, uh, Karen, it does seem that it's going to be an interesting, uh, it's going to be interesting to watch this play out. It is possible, I think, that the legislature could decide to push back the date of the Georgia primary if it really became a, an emergency situation, yes? I think so. And then I also think they can you know, lengthen or push back the time of qualifying to ensure that once the maps are in place, that everyone who wants to run knows exactly that they've lived in that district for the right amount of time and they are, their homes are in those districts, and to make the decision whether they want to run or not. I mean, redistricting is, as Charles Bullock always says, the most political activity in, you know, America and in politics. So I think the legislature really wants to get that census data as quickly as they can to move because they've got to make their decisions on who's running. And they also want to make sure when they're drawing these maps, they're doing so correctly and legally and there won't be any challenges. Well, and Nabila, the other part of this is even before the public campaign gets going, there are candidates who have to start their fundraising very early. Uh, and uh, as Greg has pointed out, people may not know where they're running. Yeah, it, it puts people in a candidates in a pickle. Uh, and, you know, because these races, especially federal races, are so expensive, you have to start super early. Uh, and, and like, you know, there's some situations, look at the Atlanta city council, like they're going to be running on old maps. Um, so it's, uh, it's making it hard for everyone. And I think it would be a good idea to push the primary date or and qualifying date to give, you know, folks a little bit more time. Eric. Well, I, I think that if someone is interested in running and thinking about running, they need to start organizing now. They need to start raising money. They need to start building their organization and they don't have time to wait. Whether you push the election back or not, you know, I, I think sometimes our elections are, are too long anyway. So shorter elections are probably um, uh, better in the in the long run. But I think if someone is a serious candidate, uh, they're not going to wait and they're going to be out there lining up their support right now. OK, um, it's going to be interesting to watch how that uh, moves forward um, and certainly redistricting, Greg is a subject that gives all of us in journalism a lot to talk about as it's underway. Uh, Greg, what exactly is happening between the Attorney General, Chris Carr, and Fani Willis, the District Attorney in Fulton County, in terms of this back and forth about whether Fulton County DA should in fact uh, be prosecuting the Rayshard Brooks case um, and, and her trying to get Carr to assign it to another uh, district attorney. What, what, what is this all about? 
Yeah, it's a hot potato um, because Fonnie Willis, as you mentioned, and Chris Carr are both insisting that the other should handle uh, these criminal cases uh, involving uh, Rayshard Brooks's death, shooting death in June. Um, uh, in the uh, the accused gunman is 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 the fired Atlanta police officer Garrett Rolf, who's been charged with felony murder. Um, another officer on the scene that night also faces charges. So it's it's been a political hot potato, and also. Um, critics of Fonnie Willis are juxtaposing that with her decision to launch a criminal prosecution into President Trump, whether or not he, um, you know, uh, committed election fraud and a range of other violations by pressuring uh, Georgia officials to reverse the outcome of his defeat. So it's it's become a um, uh, kind of a window into the very uh, tough decisions that the prosecutors and attorneys in Georgia face um, as they decide to move forward with with um, with cases involving police shootings. Um, meanwhile, it strikes me, um, Nabila, that the larger question here, which is that people are eager to see some justice begin to unfold in the death of Rayshard Brooks, whether Garrett Rolfe is found guilty of felony murder or not, uh, there is a, an outcry for s- some uh, justice in this case one way or the other. Oh, absolutely. I mean, People want justice in this situation, and it's unfortunate that, you know, people are, you know, we're having folks playing politics. Uh, we need to have justice happen as quickly as possible, and um, I'm hoping that, you know, we'll find a, a quick solution. Eric, I it, the fairly neutral observers have said they find it unusual that an attorney general wouldn't grant a request like this. Do you have any uh, insight as to what's going on here? I really don't, but it, it just seems like there's politics with the Fulton DA's office. That's my view of it. Karen? I mean, I think that's the, the clear piece. I feel like right here, it seems to be more about politics sometimes than just following what you should be, the simple legal ways of handling things. Um, okay, so, Greg, part of the in- interesting aspect of this case, though, is that uh, uh, that that uh, the attorneys for Garrett Rolfe are uh, are certainly making the case that the, it should not be prosecuted given Paul Howard's involvement before he lost election to Fonnie Willis, and the, uh, they want it moved to another jurisdiction, and and Fonnie Willis isn't going to oppose their um, motion apparently, so this thing could end up in another DA's district anyway. Yeah, and, and Chris Carr, the attorney general, keeps on saying that that. Fonnie Willis's conflicts of interest are personal to Paul Howard and do not pertain yeah. to Fonnie Willis. So uh, a lot of <laughs> a lot of legal maneuvering here. Uh, but right. but uh, right. Nabila said people just want justice. All right. We're going to watch how this plays out. Uh, we're out of time uh, for today's show. Greg Bluestein, Karen Owen, Nabila Islam, Eric Tannenblatt, thank you for a really uh, interesting conversation. Tomorrow, by the way, we're going to do a show with mayors. Sandy Springs Mayor Rusty Paul, East Point Mayor Dina uh, Holiday Ingram and Savannah Mayor Van Johnson. What's going on in their communities across the state? Um, that's it for us today. I'm Bill Niga. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear one mask. Better yet, wear two. See you all tomorrow. <laughs>